ahead. Spoilers ahead. Hello, children. Hello. Welcome to today's story. Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then here we go. Once upon a time, there were two little boys, Maxwell and Michael. Maxwell was a good, charming, and handsome boy, albeit dangerously naive. Michael was an evil, cunning, hunchbacked little boy who, lo- who loved nothing more than destroying what was good and pure. One day, Michael said to Maxwell, Hey, Maxwell, you good-for-nothing, I've got a great idea. Let's do a podcast called Max Mike Movies. But Michael, said Maxwell, aren't podcasts the tools of the forces of naughtiness? Don't only evil children make podcasts? Oh no, silly Maxwell, said Michael. Podcasts are swell. All the cool kids do them. In fact, we should do one about when we were young, as we are now, and what (laughs) movies we like, and we can call them... When we was kids. Doesn't that sound peachy keen? Now let's make a podcast or I'll feed your liver to the goats. (laughs) So Maxwell agreed and the two of them made a podcast about a Chuck Jones adaptation of the children's book The Phantom Tollbooth and then they both caught advanced gingivitis and died. (laughs) The end. I have one thing to say about that. Yes? Don't call me Michael. We hope you enjoyed today's story, children. And remember, the moral is, flossing is important. No, the moral of the story is, don't let Max host. That, <laughs> that, that is your, your lesson for today. But hey. How long before this becomes a classic? <laughs> wait for it, wait for it, and now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, again, welcome to Max Mike Movies. I'm, I am... The aforementioned Maxwell, and over there is my hunchbacked friend, Michael. Gnar! (laughs) (laughs) And we are doing the movies that had impact on us when we were youngins, which we call When We Was Kids. I can still feel the crater. (laughs) (laughs) A little business. You can, of course, find our entire back catalog of classic vinyl hits at our website, maxmikemovies.com, where you can also leave comments about our shows. We hates vinyl. We hates it forever. <laughs> yes, Mike, not a fan. No. Uh, you can, of course, find us on the social medias, on either Facebook or the Twitter, at Max Mike Movies, And you can listen to us on the podcast app of your choice, like the Google Podcast app or the Apple iTunes app, and that's about it. And uh, you can also find us on Spotify. Or heck, if you're one of those people, you can email us and we'll make a cassette of the show for you, because that's yes. a thing. <laughs> but no, no eight tracks. No, no eight tracks. Gnar, gnar. No, gnar. <laughs> the show. So yes, so this time we are. Uh, this was my choice. And we are reviewing a 1970 movie directed by the great animator Chuck Jones of animation fame. I mean, what? It's Chuck Jones. Hey, you know what this show means? What? We got out of the 60s. We got out of the 60s. (laughs) We got out of the 60s alive. Well, by one year. This was 1970. And uh, this was based on the book of the same name, The Phantom Tollbooth, written by Norman Juster, which I loved as a child. I only saw this movie once when I was very little, and I can tell my memories were conflated with the book. 
because I don't. I I like you. I saw it in the theater when it came out, and that's it. Yeah. I was also very disappointed. I will tell you this is a piece of personal trivia. I knew this book because in third grade, our teacher, our homeroom teacher, read it aloud to us, and I was enthralled. However, she had clearly never met anyone actually named Milo. Oh, was it Milo? Because all through it, she called him Milo. Milo. And when I saw the movie, all I could think was, they're getting it wrong. Oh. I'd never met anyone named Milo either. I didn't know you were supposed to pronounce it that way. Well, at least you could. Well, who's the director? Milo Foreman? Milos Foreman. Milos. Yeah, yeah that's close. Um, yeah. I, I, I know the name Milo because that's the name of my car. <laughs> you don't run into a lot of people named Milo anymore. Nope. One of my uh, coworkers' sons is named Milo, but that's other than Oh, that, maybe yeah. it's making a comeback. Okay. Yeah, one guy did it. Okay. Huh. Yeah, there, I, I under, totally understand that that childhood frustration. They're doing it wrong. They're doing. They yeah. totally got it wrong. I hate this. Yeah. Yeah. It really it bugged me through the whole movie because I didn't know I I knew it wrong. Mm. It's like when you have that song lyric in your head and you're sure you know what it is, and when you find out what the actual lyric is, you're like, no. Oh, uh, so excuse I, me while I kiss this guy. Yes, <laughs> that's right. What is it? She's got electric. What was it, Mike? Electric from boobs. Of the jets? <laughs> It's not LS as opposed to electric boots, which actually rhymes with mohair suits. Mike is convinced it's electric boobs. Uh, yeah, I, it, that's the way I'm sure. It's it's exactly and of, right. And you and know, there's course, a bathroom on the right. <laughs> <laughs> Big old Jed's pet rhino. There's, there's uh, one. <laughs> yes, blinded by the light, wrapped up like two douche. It's like a, another or onus in the night or yeah. whatever it was. That's yeah. one of the one. There's like this list of the most misheard song lyrics. Yeah. I know that's one of them. But, back to the movie. Trivia. So I've got, got a few things, a little bit of trivia. There's really not much about this movie. Hmm. Said it was uh, based on the uh, book by the same name. The author, Norman Juster, did not like this movie and was actually annoyed because it got positive reviews at the time. He had no input into the adaptation and a lot of the characters in the book were not included in the film or were just sort of glossed over very given very quick appearance the budget was about two million dollars and i cannot find the box office take anywhere the close i looked all over the web I, the closest i got was not a financial success yeah uh the movie was actually made so we haven't actually gotten out of the 60s it was made between 1967 and 68 Don't. but but mgm was having financial problems and kept changing management, so the film wasn't heavily promoted. When it was finally released in 1970, they only exhibited it for matinees on weekends for two weeks. So wow! Really not, yeah. How the hell did we see this? <laughs> I don't. We must. If we got lucky, I guess. I mean, again, this. I remember seeing it at the Waltham Cinema, and I don't see any other way I would have seen it because yeah. I don't think it got a lot of TV play. Although I don't think so. I, have some I saw suspicions. it in the theater too. Yeah. yeah. Go anyway. Go ahead. Uh, the, this was MGM's first full-length animated film and the last film that the studio released to have both live-action and animation. And uh, their animation studio closed not long after this film's release. Hmm. I yeah. thought they did... Who did Cats Don't Dance? I thought that was MGM. I don't remember. 
Cats are for those who like animated films. This is a film that gets overlooked by a lot of people, and the animation is really good. It's a really charming film, and I highly recommend it if you can look it up. Um, Never seen it. Yeah, it's really fun. It's very much you would actually like it, I think, because it's got a lot of uh, feeling of old Hollywood. The idea of it is, is a lot of old Hollywood, and there's definitely some references to. Uh, shall we say, some of the denizens thereof. Okay. But it's about this young cat, uh, you know, we're talking animated like Tom and Jerry animated, uh, who can sing and dance and wants to go to Hollywood and make a big name for himself. So it's, you know, that story, but it's done with, you know, talking animals, because, yeah. Anyway, um, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, a demo recording of the song Noise, Noise, Beautiful Noise, with different voices and musical arrangement, was used in two experimental pieces of computer animation done on the ancient Animac system in 1968. It's Beautiful Noise and the Din. Hmm. You know what the Animac system was? I do not. I Yeah, I'd never heard of it either. I had to look this up. It was originally called the Bone Generator, and it's sort of like an early version of, um, uh, what do you call that, body mapping, you know, where you wear the, the green suit with the little balls all over sure. it. Sure. Yeah. It was, uh, you'd wear a body suit... Uh, fit with potentiometers and gave the input of a set of bones that made up the character's skeleton. And from this set, they would do 3D lines and they'd be produced on a 2D display. Hmm. Yeah. Um, This film, by the way, has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on, I should point out, 10 reviews. I'm still... Well, we'll get to that. That yeah. is, that's a high rating. Yeah, you should. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, real quick, uh, it turns out Cats Don't Dance was, in fact, Warner Brothers, which makes a lot more uh, sense. okay, okay. And, uh... There is one. There is a director cameo in the opening segment. Uh, Milo is on a streetcar, and the man sitting next to him is Chuck Jones. Oh, I totally missed that, and I even know what he looks like. I don't. I don't know what he looks like. Uh, also, there is one particular mistake made in the movie. At one point, in the numbers mind, Milo says, "Golly!" And I used to think that numbers weren't important or valuable. And a character, the mathematician, responds with, Not important, not valuable, by the 4,827,659 hairs on my head. I'll tell you what's important. And just so you know, the average head has between 100,000 and 150,000 hairs. Far below what the mathematician stated, worst movie ever. You've totally ruined the experience for me, Max. I I have. Uh, So next week we'll need a new host if you'd like to... Oh. It's been a while. So that's pretty literally it. There is very little trivia about this this movie. Uh, people have been talking about making a remake of it for the last, I don't know, seven, eight years. But so far it hadn't happened. Yeah, um, I, just from an animation standpoint, uh, the production designer, the art director, is a man named Maurice Noble, whose work is outside of people who are interested in animation is probably not well known. But if I mention some of the cartoons that he did the art direction for, you'll suddenly go, oh, yeah. So like what? what's Opera Doc? Uh, oh. Yeah. So that style is him, and it's all over the place here. Um, he did actually did tons of the Warner Brothers cartoons, specifically with Chuck Jones. A lot of the, in fact, I think all of the uh, Chuck Jones Roadrunner cartoons, uh, he art directed. So all those those. Uh, desert scenes were designed by him. A lot of yeah, a lot of the backgrounds in this. I'm going. It looks like there should be a roadrunner running through this with a coyote after him. Yeah, and when he left Warner Brothers or when brother Warner Brothers closed, I can't remember which happened first, and went to MGM to do Tom and Jerry. He brought Maurice Noble with him. 
um, because he was like, this is my guy. And uh, he's, he's, there's a lot of people in the animation industry who uh, learned a lot from Maurice Noble. And his, his work is very striking and very recognizable if you know what to look for. Also, Chuck Jones, I mean, Chuck Jones, for those who don't know, he is generally considered to be the best director of the Warner Brothers shorts. Um, although many people have cited him as creating Bugs Bunny, he wasn't even close. No, he was way before him. He did. I mean, if you have, of your favorite cartoons, if you remember them, uh, Duck Rabbit, Duck, um, What's Opera, Doc, uh, Dodgers in the twenty fourth and a half century, The Rabbit of Seville. Uh, his humor. I don't even know how if, if he if it was his writing so much because I know he didn't write them so much, but there was something about a lot of the latter. 40s and 50s Chuck Jones Warner Brothers cartoons that were pretty much hitting the nail as hard as he could on the head and they're like the when most people talk about a classic Bugs Bunny they're talking about a Chuck Jones cartoon yeah. not always there are other directors I think who True. did equal or in some cases better jobs than him and I will say also I did not care for his work on Tom and Jerry for one of the things he did is he slowed them way down and Tom yeah. and Jerry need to run at a frenetic pace and interestingly the Tom and Jerry cartoons the really fast moving and fun ones mostly directed by Hannah and Barbera who went on of course to make huh. their own studio and Shag and Scoob and the gang. So. Badabadoo. Yeah. So, yes, thought I'd throw, yeah. since you didn't have a lot of trivia. So, uh, if you would like to um, tell us the plot. Yes, the plot. Milo, played by Eddie Munster himself, Butch Patrick, also f- Mark from Lidsville. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. No, that came later. We'll maybe we want to talk about that, or we may want to let it die quietly in the corner. <laughs> let it go. Is a young boy in the city, some city. It's San Francisco. Who, it's obviously San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Who, for some reason, appears to be in the grip of existential despair. I mean, we're talking Jean-Paul Sartre without the darkly humorous acceptance. Oh, I think Elizabeth Barrett Browning can't even get off the couch today. That's... <laughs> yeah. Bored with life and the world... <laughs> At age nine. <laughs> yeah, he's obviously seen it and done it all. We, we get very little backstory about Milo. But anyway, he suddenly <laughs> finds an enormous present box in his bedroom, which turns out to be a magical toll booth and car that turns him into an animated Chuck Jones character and transports him to a strange and wondrous land, the lands beyond, where metaphysical concepts and obvious metaphors take on a life of their own. Milo must heal the rift between the kingdom of words and the kingdom of numbers by rescuing the banished princesses of rhyme and reason. Along with his companions Tok the Watchdog and the Humbug, Milo embarks on an epic quest to bring back rhyme and reason to the land. That's pretty much it. The Lowdown. Okay, so the first thing I'd like to mention is we do actually know one thing about Milo. Uh, he lives alone in a very nice apartment in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, yeah, Milo comes home from school, nobody there. Yeah. And he has and, the, and long, he has a, he has the has longest walk home ever. It includes a forest, a field, and a ride on a cable car. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think he lives in San Francisco and is going to school somewhere in Nevada. Yeah, and I also had to point out that the the house they used, the apartment they used, at least the interiors, felt a lot like the interiors that they used for Invasion of the Body Snatchers. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't pick that up, but I can see that. Yes, and he has his best friend or a friend or some guy on the phone named Ralph. Right. That's the extent of it. Yeah. Uh, We also noticed that for some reason, 
When he's in the real world, Milo has blue eyes, but when he becomes a cartoon, he has brown eyes. Yeah. I'm sure this is very significant. Very. Uh, yeah, the opening of the film has this weird voyeuristic quality. Like, we get up and so we can count pores on Milo's face. It's kind of... Yeah, even the opening song is about Milo. Right. It's, What's what will happen to Milo? Yeah, and Milo gets home and there's nobody there, so he's a latchkey nope. kid, which was a thing. I was a latchkey kid. Were you a latchkey kid? Uh, no, I was not. Okay, so I was a latchkey kid, and so what that means is that you know the middle class was starting to feel the first pangs of of you know not being able to keep up because of course in the fifties the husband worked and the mom stayed home and made cake. Um, Oh, cake. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of times, uh, starting again in the late 60s, early 70s, you would have both parents working. And so the kids, when they were old enough, had their own house keys. And by old enough, I mean like, you know, nine, ten years old. Yeah. And they would let themselves in and take care of themselves until mom or dad got home. Um, but we don't see any evidence of Milo's parents at yeah. all. It's we not even suggested. Like he doesn't say, "Oh yeah, mom's not home yet." There's so I assume he's living a bachelor life. I mean, obviously he's <laughs> at the age weary. of nine. Yeah. <laughs> I kept expect. I mean, all I could kept thinking was, "Why doesn't Milo care?" <laughs> I, I have. I don't honestly think I've ever seen a child portrayed like this. Like, yeah, it it so world weary and. And just filled with ennui. Yeah, I mean, it's not only that like he doesn't like school. Hey, I get that. You know, when you're a kid, you don't sure. like school. You want to go home and play. No, he wants to come home because he doesn't want to be in school. He even says this at one point. It's like, oh, when I'm school, I just want to leave school. And then when I get home, it's like everything's boring. And it's like you could leave the house. <laughs> that, no, I'll yeah. just wait for my friend Ralph to call so we can sit there and bitch at each other about how life is boring. <laughs> I can't, you know, I expect him to meet in a cafe and be drinking little, you know, baby Pernods and smoking <laughs> black cigarettes. We are we born, are born to the grave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I like, okay, I didn't read the book. Or if I did, it was so long ago, I literally don't remember. I remember owning the book. I think my sister read it. Um, hey, Val, if you read this, you could um, email us, you know, actually emails. Don't send me a text Email us because we have an email address Val's and say, Yes, I read the book. Comments. She leaves comments on the site. Yeah, I know she does. But uh, I, it's, well, it's my sister. I'm supposed to do that. Um, but do you remember the plot of the book well enough? Or? Yeah, the plot of the, the, the basic plot, which again, I haven't read this book in about 100 years either, is what we see. Um, except Milo, there's a little, it's not so much that. Uh, He's just bored with existence. He he thinks the world is incredibly mundane and dull, and he wishes for something more exciting and interesting to happen. Okay, so that one little change you just made would have made the movie a lot more like acceptable. Yeah, it would make Milo a lot more interesting and likable as a character. I mean, because quite honestly, the, what we see in the real world and what we see in the animated world, it's like two different people. He's very polite in the in the uh, animated world. He's very into manners, which is a, a Thing from the book, Milo uh, talks about. You know, he knows that manners are important, and he's very, he's very well mannered, and he speaks well to people. Yeah, boy, when did that go out of fashion? Yeah, no. Um, I yeah, I don't understand Milo 
as a human, and I mean that not as an animated person, but it's not as a human. That's like I I can't figure out what led to this. He also the kid lives in San Francisco, one of the most exciting cities in the country, <laughs> and he's bored. And I yeah. and he he actually walks through all this stuff. It's like here's a park where all these other kids are playing. No, I'm just gonna trudge home. Mar- a marketplace here and all this cool stuff. Yeah. Also, I'm a little concerned about Milo's cognitive abilities when he's looking at the president. He the present that has appeared in his room, he says, I don't think it's my birthday. Yeah. You don't know? <laughs> that is something every kid, once they're old enough to understand the concept of birthdays, they know when their damn birthday is. I swear, I'm just waiting for him at one point to, like, go past hate ashbury and just go shrug and go, yeah, free love, whatever. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Mr. Hendricks. Excuse me. Yeah, it's like I, I, actually the late '60s San Francisco, and you're bored. Yeah. I totally don't understand that. I don't get it. Um, whatever. But so, so he, he, when he ends up, now he ends in the lands of beyond, and in and th- this is something I, I did want to talk about. You know, I had some ideas for <laughs> the. This is very clearly a lessons movie oh yeah one of my notes was oh no is there going to be learning (laughs) yeah yeah did you think it was too obvious or that it was well done uh uh, i think it hits you over the head i think honestly if if a child got that far into the film and as soon as he gets into the lands from beyond he's like oh no i just came home from school i'm not going back (laughs) (laughs) yeah everything is very heavy-handed and it's very much of you know uh why the one of the, the major conflict is between two factions of the same land, the land of numbers and the land of words. And the king, the king of words, King Azaz, get it, A Z A Z, get it. At least they didn't do Ataz. Yeah, yeah, well, they probably would have gotten in trouble with Star Trek. Yeah, uh, and the the king of numbers, the mathematician. Each one thinks that their particular medium of expression is the most powerful and the most important. Yeah, I mean, I quite honestly, I'd rather see a war between the kingdoms of stuff and reasons. <laughs> At least that would be, you know, themic for yeah, our show. Yeah, um, yeah. And of course, you know, this is this is based, that whole conflict is based on the real world um, conflict between... No, there's nothing. There's No, there, re- there really isn't. And now, is that what was in the book? You don't remember. No, there, there is... It's similar. Okay. There, there is a conflict between the words and the numbers, but it's not quite as heavy handed. Or at least I don't, excuse me, I don't remember it being that heavy handed. It might have been. I don't know. I wonder if And I... Uh, some of the monsters and the creatures they run into, yes, those are absolutely just as heavy handed. They run into, although some of them are just odd. Like this, there's a character, the census taker. Yeah, who? Who tries to get them to fill out forms, but what he's doing is he takes away your, what, your, your sense, of, sense of purpose, your sense of direction. Yeah, get and, it. And. The only thing that saves them is their sense of humor. Yeah, because they stole. They happened to steal a bottle of laughs from the uh, the loud guy whose name I don't remember. Uh, Doctor Cacophonous. Yeah, and his his servant the uh, the dreadful din. Right. Which, by the way, the dreadful din is some of the laziest animation in this movie. Because it just looks like a purple crayon scroll with eyes. Yeah, there's certain parts, like the main characters, almost all the main characters, 
felt like, oh, this is Chuck Jones' territory. And actually, this is much later in the film. When we get to the characters known as the Demons of Ignorance, I'm like, did you hire somebody else? Because this does not look like they're drawn by the same people at all. No, and it looks like it's done very, very slapdash and very quickly. Yeah, I'm going to be on a little bit of the opposite side of the fence. I actually liked the way they animated it. It's literally a smear of paint with eyes, but I actually liked the way they... they, Yeah, I liked the way they animated it um, as much as I liked anything oh giving it away uh, the wordplay in this movie is painful yeah, everything is like more... look how look how clever we are yeah, we in clever? the book it flowed a lot better at least i remember it but it's so heavy it's so ham-handed in yeah. this i mean there's practically pause look at audience hold for laugh at every attempt at a pun or or wordplay or or, or cleverness yeah, and like there's one point where there's this big banquet, and you have to make a speech, and it turns out that the speech is what you're having for dinner. Yeah, and Milo what? even says, "I didn't know I was going to have to eat my words." <laughs> yeah, and they repeat huh. that several times. Well, that's what we're all doing is eating our words. You should have made a taste to your speech. Yeah. Oh, that's cause... one thing I do have to point out: the the uh, cast in this movie. Yes. I was going to This get to that is too. voice acting royalty. Yeah. First of all, Mel Blanc and Dawes Butler. I didn't know yes. they ever worked together because Mel Blanc was the voice of Warner Brothers and Dawes Butler is the voice of Hanna-Barbera. One of them, yeah, the big one. And I didn't know that they'd necessarily... I'm sure at some point, because there was a lot of voiceover work, commercials, radio shows and stuff, at some point they probably had. Yeah. I didn't know that they were in a, in a movie together either. Um... I I am a bigger fan of Dawes Butler than I am of Mel Blanc, partially because there's a lot of Mel Blanc that sounds like Mel Blanc, and in this movie, all of the characters that he does sound like Mel Blanc. Well, like and, when Officer Short Shrift shows up, who I like again in the mo- in the book is much more interesting. He doesn't just run around going guilty, guilty, guilty. Yeah. He, I'm saying, oh, it's Officer Yosemite Sam. Yeah, and I to, for he's actually one of the few things I remember from this film was that little guy going guilty, guilty, guilty. Um, Chuck, so Mel Blanc, he's the one everybody knows. If anybody knows a voice actor, they know Mel Blanc, and that was on purpose. Mel did that himself. Mel was very big on making sure early on that Mel got credit. Mel got made sure that Mel was in the news. He got interviewed. He had a deal where he was the only voice actor credited, whether or not he was the only voice actor in the cartoon. And so people who are also in this film, like June Foray, generally don't get credited. Um, June Foray, uh, probably most famous for doing Granny in the Warner Brothers cartoons, for doing uh, Rocket J. Squirrel. Yep. Um, she's which also Hazel? The, the grandmother in Mulan. She's also, I think, uh, I think she's Smurfette. <laughs> really? Okay, that's, I, that's I, entirely possible. So, yeah, she's in this. Hans Conrad is in it. And Hans me, Conrad? Yeah, even if you don't know the name, if you hear his voice, you go, oh, that guy. Like, there <laughs> are strange things in the universe. <laughs> I adore yeah. Hans Conrad. Hans. Uh, the only the only time I've seen him in a film is The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, yep. which is probably, as far as I know, still... Oh, no, no, no. By now we've done more, sadly. It was the first live-action adaptation of a Dr. Seuss uh, story. Yeah, and it still and remains the best if you consider the others are the, the Grinch and the Cat and the Hat. 
Yeah, and it's weird. It's um, very we, strange. Max and I got to see it at one of the local Boston th- cinemas way back when because they somebody had a copy of it. But it was one of those films that basically never got re-released. And so it's like, what is this? It's like, wait, what? they did a Dr. Seuss film in the 50s? And Hans Conried plays the villain in it. And it's 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 not great, but he's wonderful. He has so much um, fun. And he's also, of course, in he plays Wrongway Feldman in uh, yep. Gilligan's Island yep. twice. <laughs> yeah, he actually he shows up in quite a lot. Of, he's been on a bunch of old, he was on a bunch of old sitcoms. Yeah, uh, but and also, uh, although I don't believe he's actually credited in the movie, Thurl Ravenscroft is in this. He briefly plays the uh, Din, doesn't he? No, he's the Lethargians in the creatures oh, okay. in the doldrums. Thurl Ravenscroft, apart from doing a lot of voice acting, is probably best known for, I believe he was the first, he was the first voice of Tony the Tiger. And he did it from the 50s through the 90s. Yeah, 40 he was still- years he was Tony and- the Tiger. And Joan Furay, too. She was voice acting up until her 90s. She passed away, I think, at 99. Yeah. And she was still working. And she oh. was sort of the last of the golden age of, of voice actors for cartoons. That's right. And she was also Brunhilde in the Captain in the Captain Crunch commercials that Jay Ward did. Yeah, because, yeah, she did stuff with Jay Ward. She did uh, Rocky. Rocky and Bullwinkle was uh, Jay Ward. Um, yeah, she's uh, she is basically the queen of voice acting. She's amazing. She's apparently like the nicest person ever. Um, Dawes Butler, I adore. He did basically. If it wasn't Dawes Butler doing the character in Hanna Barbera cartoons, the earlier ones, it was. Um, oh my god, I can't remember. I can't, can't believe I forgot his name. Um, so it's basically you have Yogi Dawes Butler, Boo Boo done by the other guy who I can see his face and I'm going to get... We should get mail for this. If you can remember this guy's name, please, because <laughs> yeah. he did Scooby-Doo. Uh, he did tons of characters, too. But Dawes Butler, uh, Elroy Jetson was him. Yogi Bear, Huckleberry Hound. Um, tons and tons I of characters. we're getting way far away from the movie. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking yeah. of voice actors, real quick, the one that I thought really stood out was Tock. I don't know who did his voice, but I honestly thought he was miscast. His voice felt, I don't know, like he wasn't even in the same movie. Yeah, he sounded way... He's, uh... His name, I have it somewhere. But uh, he sounds way too um, self-possessed. Yeah, it's a guy named Larry... This is a great name. Larry Thor. <laughs> yep. Like the god. The lesser like, god of thunder. Like, yep, yep. And actually, we you do know him because <laughs> he was... Major Eric Coulter, M.D., in The Amazing Colossal Man. Oh, God. Yep. Okay. Yep. Well, I've seen that a few dozen times, but okay. Yeah, he just, like, he he, he felt like he wasn't a voice actor. And it's like somebody owed somebody a favor. He was mostly he a TV actor, but yeah. Larry Thor, huh? Larry so maybe, Thor. Maybe he's the god of stomach rumbling something or something. like that. <laughs> And again, Larry I, Thor, I thought not... he did a nice job. I mean, I think the performance is good, but as you say, it's very out of place because he sounds very normal. He doesn't sound very cartoony. It's like the second replacement for, you know, Dick York on Bewitched. <laughs> kind of, kind of. Yeah. Except, so, you know, anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah. The next point, please. Uh, yeah. You got a next point. Yeah. You to get uh, to. In the book, there are no songs. This, really? Wow. Yes. Hey, I want to say I want to go on a limb and say in this movie there aren't any songs either. Oh, Can you hum a note for many of them? No, uh, oh yeah. Don't say there's nothing to do in the doldrums. Uh, that I remembered. I remembered okay. that even from the movie as a kid. That's it. Now. There are yeah. like a dozen songs in this. I couldn't tell you any of the others. They are utterly unmemorable, flat, boring, and almost atonal. 
and all they really do is like their songs. Yeah. Like there nothing particularly interesting happens during them. Doesn't nothing um, is added. No. Yeah. <laughs> it you don't sing them. You just sort of wait for them to, to, to peter out and you know. There are also some rather surprising moments. I mean, admittedly, at one point when they're entering the numbers mine and they run into the dodecahedron, and all I can think is, (laughs) it's a talking D12! That's the first thing I thought, too. Because Max and I, as you well know, are both D&D nerds, so it's like, aha! Yeah, it's a 12-sided die, but except each, each face doesn't have a number, it has an actual face. I can think of no better reason for knowing what the platonic solids are. Yep. Which is why you don't use D10s. They're not platonic solids. <laughs> shh, 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 it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, th- at that point, there's a little bit of, again, <sighs> Milo is a very uneven and inconsistent character because make the, it's clear he doesn't pay attention in school. He doesn't know stuff. And yet to get into the mine, he pulls out of nowhere that he starts answering these really high-level math questions. Yeah. The dodecahedron starts spouting a number, you know, one, one, three, E five, and it's the and he goes, Oh, the Fibonacci series. Like, <laughs> you're nine. How do you know what the Fibonacci series? Another one requires that he knows vector calculus. Yeah, I actually when they started doing it, I knew what the Fibonacci series is. The only reason I know what the Fibonacci series is is because a friend of ours, uh, a, a nice person named Steve Kellner, wrote a role-playing game once that used the Fibonacci series as a means of progression t- through levels. Sequence, which I, I think it is. Fibonacci sequence. Yeah, fi- yeah, Fibonacci sequence, which I actually thought makes sense. Basically, what it says is that, in this case, the further you go, the harder it is to learn something, which is kind of reflective of life. But the idea behind it is that the number you're looking at is equal to the two numbers before it added together. So one, one, three, yeah. f- whatever, five, uh, eight, eight, so on and so forth. That I'm sorry, that number and the one before it yeah. added together. But yeah, <laughs> I recognized it, but I'm like, and this goes through the film. There's lots of words in there. I'm like, huh? And part of me is wondering now, wait, did we just like stop learning big stuff at some point? Did they stop teaching us? Because I mean, yeah, the, no, there's no way you or I learned the Fibonacci series. I'm or pretty sequence. sure I didn't. But but still, like, I kind of wonder. Part of me is thinking, if I were to 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 look at what was taught in schools when we were kids, um, and what's being taught now, how about kids' vocabulary? Because he's throwing out some pretty amazing words in there. Yeah. Um, and I'm I, I can't tell if that's because it's not written well for kids or maybe things were taught better then I don't know I, I'm not sure I do think the book that the author was trying to ch- be a little more challenging was trying to use some more abstract concepts and larger words than maybe kids that, but I'm not sure well I and, tell and we talked a little bit about this so you know a while ago when we were saying things like uh, that children's literature, there's no excuse for badly written children's literature. You don't write poorly because it's for kids. Yeah, we've seen that. There's too many examples of really good children's literature, but we've been through that. By yeah. the way, the reason I know it's Fibonacci sequence and not series is not because of my advanced mathematics training. It's because of an episode of the Powerpuff Girls. <laughs> yep, they run into a character who is voiced by Ringo Starr. <laughs> And he is this scientist who wears this glittery lab coat, and his name is Fibonacci Sequins, S-E-Q-I-N-S. Uh. <laughs> That's the only reason I remember that it's Sequins. 
<laughs> All right, I got to go back a little bit to the seventies again. Um, oh, why? I used because oh, while we're here anyway, this used to drive my mother crazy. My mother was a big opera fan, and occasionally a piece of classical music would come on, and I'd go, I'd say to her something like, "Oh, isn't that from Marriage of Figaro? Oh, isn't this from blah blah blah?" And she was so happy, and I would then ruin the <laughs> moment by saying things like, "Because that was in The Bunny of Seville," or you know, that was, I saw this on Gilligan's Island, or and she was so upset. But the point was, I knew it. And like you just said, I know the Fibonacci sequence because of a Powerpuff Girls cartoon. <laughs> Both of us grew up watching cartoons on Saturday mornings, and they had this thing between cartoons called Schoolhouse Rock. Ah, which that's how I, I learned the preamble of the Constitution. I still remember it. I honestly think was the most brilliant thing ever done for educational yeah, television. And it genius. wasn't educational TV. It was network. It was ABC. Yeah. And... It was, and all of us kids loved it. I remember when they put out a record and somebody brought it to class and we were thrilled. Mm -hmm. It was this cart, it made learning fun. Yep. And they did it during stuff we liked to do anyway. And, you know, knowing what a, a pronoun is, knowing what adverbs are, and knowing um, uh, times multiplication the tables. multiplication tables yeah, and history. I, good heavens, that was how I knew, you know, the 19th Amendment was passed in 1920. So it gave women the right to vote in this country. Yep. It was because of Schoolhouse Rock. Yes. So it does not matter where kids learn stuff. And it doesn't matter if it's put into something that you're, you would roll your eyes at. It does matter. It, and I think we've lost that. Yeah. yeah, okay, they tack on the, you know, don't stick your hand in the garbage disposal at the end of the G.I. Joe episode. But it's not really the same thing, nor is it done for the same reason. They do that so they can sit there and say, look, kids can watch G.I. Joe, they're learning. Yeah, I used to, fr it freaked out my middle school science teacher that I knew the melting points of iron, lead, and gold, and that I knew the ductility and what ductile and malleable meant in terms of metal. She was like, how do you know that? You know why? Because I got it from the Metal Men comic book. Yep. <laughs> because these were, they were robots made of a particular metal, and they used to throw the science in like, oh no, that laser is nearly 3,750 degrees Fahrenheit. That's iron's <laughs> melting point. <laughs> I'm not saying they worked it in smoothly, but it was there. I'm pretty sure I also have the, the number wrong, but I'm pretty close. But oh, I yeah. used to know all that stuff, and it was because of the darn comic book. Yeah. And, you know, this sort of thing as you know, you can use animation for that purpose well. This is not one of those times, <laughs> no. I think. No. Um, the, the, and I can't... I can't quite figure out where they're even going with this. There was this sort of weird dichotomy of um, we're trying to teach kids something and sort of an ABC after school special. Um, and, you know, again, once again, for those who don't know, believe it or not, at one point, ABC used to make these dramatic shows for kids that quite honestly covered some pretty serious ground because yeah, really um, i think elements. wasn't dawn portrait of a teenage runaway and after school special i, I think, think so i think so. so and that was where eve plum jan of the brady bunch runs away from home only to become embroiled in child pornography yeah so yeah um but yeah. also it had things like time for timer because uh I, you know that one <laughs> that's yeah. right. anyway i'm yeah, sorry i'm yeah. okay that's all right uh, yeah, the, again, I'm not sure what this the, where this what this movie is going for. What is the message here? I don't because, know. I mean, at the toward the end when Milo is reaching the where rhyme and reason are kept prisoner in the castle in the air, which apparently anytime anyone says that there's a big thunderclap. 
<laughs> I don't yeah. know why, but... Uh, it's Frau Blucher all over again. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and they start fighting the demons of ignorance. And they that's when they, uh, you know, there's no subtlety in this movie to begin with. And here they just start punching you in the face. <laughs> with ignorance! Yeah, seriously. Because, oh, like, here's one that it's, what, the two-headed dragon of hypocrisy. The two-faced dragon of hypocrisy. And there's one that's, you know, uh, cruelty, prejudice, hate... Yeah. And he can defeat them all with the power of words and numbers. That's right. only Except b- the only thing he uses numbers for, he brings out, he calls up the number four so he can use it like a bow yeah. to shoot the words into the monsters. So it's like, uh, okay, numbers, yeah. Yeah, it, does, it doesn't work. It, it, no. it, it, I remember it being more impressive in the book, but I can't remember how it happens in the book. I mean, there are also things I like when they're... <laughs> in the book, There was one, th- one of the things they left out was... They're going along and saying, oh, you know, I think it's smooth sailing from now on. And then they end up on this island, and it turns out what they had done was they had jumped to conclusions. So they were on oh. the Isle of Conclusions. Not and, the Isle of Lucy? No, not the Isle of Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> right, and there's one sequence where they meet the great Chroma, who yeah. con- who conducts the sunrise and the sunset. In, in the book, he's more of, he's the master of color. And I have to say, when he gets up there and he's about to conduct, all I could think was, Leopold. 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 Be- Leopold. And I th- I think that's, again, that's a Chuck Jonesism because he even does the eye movements, the looking left and right and keeping the hands down by his sides, exactly like the way Bugs Bunny pretending to be Leopold Stokowski or whoever in long-haired hair does. It's the yes. same... It's the same design, and I, I thought that was kind of, I don't know, che- I don't know if it's a signature or if it's cheating. Well, I actually, one of my notes was there's a lot of reused Jones ideas, yeah. stuff we've seen many times in Warner Brothers cartoons, and I mean, he comes from, so the, the history of those theatrical cartoons, believe it or not, it used to be a thing where if you went to the movies, you got a cartoon, you got a short subject. Oh, you, you got several get, cartoons. Tons of stuff. Mm-hmm. And the cartoons were a way to get people to go. Like, that's that's why Disney started off as a thing. And Warner Brothers eventually chimed in and did their thing. And the cool thing about those type of cartoons and animation in general is that this is one of the only art forms that has grown up in recent times like this whole language didn't even exist and chuck jones was there from the beginning he was uh very early on even before he got to direct he was an in-betweener and then an animator etc but he was one of the people who helped come up with the visual language of a cartoons now unfortunately they got to a certain point 40s and 50s and that language kind of stopped evolving and of course chuck by that point was probably in his 50s or 60s Um, and you know, by the time he made this film, I should say. And so his, his vocabulary, unlike Milo's and the rest of the film doesn't really expand that far. Uh. And so we see these, you know, people getting hit in the, we don't actually don't see it hit hit in the face with a pie, but that thing, it's like, I went the exact same place and not only does he copy it from, uh, long haired hair or, you know, other cartoons he's done. We see it twice because we see Chroma yes. go up and do the, you know, and it's and, like, okay. Chroma's a character, too, that we're, we're, oh, this is the character they told us about. Oh, really? When? So, I don't remember this character being mentioned anywhere in I the remember Tok says there's only one sane man left, and then it turns out that's Chroma. We don't oh. have any, but of course, we only know that because Tok tells us. He right. doesn't seem any saner than anyone else. 
he conducts the, the the sunset and the sunrise. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's sane. But then he has like literally no point other than that. And then we get a moment where Milo gets to pick up the conductor's wand and make a mess. Yeah, and there's kind but, of a sorcerer's apprentice vibe about that. Except yeah. when then he just stops, and it's like there's no real consequence. It's just like no, oh nope, I'm done. No, and you know. Speaking of no consequence, there's really the motivation here. So the whole point of, of Milo moving on and going and doing all this stuff is when he first gets in the car and heads through the toll booth into cartoon land, one of the rules, which we never see, you would think that's, oh, there's eight rules. We would think we would see them, but we don't. Yeah. We see a little card that apparently has the, the rules on them and it's in the car and it's in a little slot, but we never actually see what the rules are. But one of the rules is you have to pick a destination. And Milo looks at the map of the lands of elsewhere and chooses the castle in the sky for apparently no particular reason, except quite honestly, the rest of the map looks pretty dour and uninteresting. Yeah. Um, and so the whole conflict is, well, I guess I have to see this through and, and help the words and the, the, and the numbers because otherwise I'm not going to get to this destination that I picked at random. Yeah, there's really not much driving force. The idea is supposed to be that Milo is basically a nice guy and decides he wants to help this place, but that doesn't come across. He's no. mostly just sort of like, well, this is, I guess, the next thing we do. Yeah. And then then we get to, you know, the various lands, lands of words, and Hans Conried. Yep, Hans Conried plays both King Azaz and the Mathematician. Yep, and, and you know, they're, they're their own selves, I guess, and he quite quickly and easily convinces the the King of Words there as as, as that, uh, oh, yes, I, I see the errors of my ways. You should go talk to my brother and everything will come out just hunky-dory. Um, and then there's this little Captain Kirk battle with a computer uh, <laughs> kind of thing where he goes to the mathematician and it's like, oh, no, my brother said that I should help you. He's going to help you. Then I certainly won't. Because blah, blah. we never agree on anything. And Milo, mm. in a rather clumsy bit of wordplay, says, so you agree with him that both of you will never agree. Like, oh, then, I've been tricked. Error, error, error. <laughs> <laughs> this guy in a robe comes running and going, Landrew, guide us. And so, <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, and once again, Kirk has saved the day. Yeah. yeah, so then they're able to go off with the blessing of numbers and words. and um, yeah. Yes, and, he, they're given a bag of words and a magic pencil that does something. And again, yes, I've as long as you have... <laughs> uh, I've, got a, I've got a hole in me pocket. I'm sure you do. <laughs> Yeah, and he gets up there and he battles with the demons yeah, of yeah. the thing, and it's all very interesting. Then he ends up back home, and it turns out that he, though he's only been gone, <laughs> even though it seems to have been days, he's been gone five minutes, which is really kind of pitiful because Ralph has just been sitting there on the phone for five minutes waiting for Milo to come back to the phone. So I don't think Ralph has much of a life. I'm beginning to think Ralph might be Ralph Wiggum from The Simpsons. <laughs> I'm oh, he in, grows up. I'm in danger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's not going to be answering any want ads soon. No. Um, and then, of course, what happens for reasons and stuff, um, <laughs> who I guess are the other princesses that have to be freed. <laughs> no, no, they're uh, the princes the, who have to come and marry them eventually. Uh, one, two princes here before you? Yep, okay. yep. Um, that's a deep one. Um <laughs> He gets the present, and Milo is basically like, "Whoa, you're gonna find out!" And then he goes out, and the world's a great, wonderful place, and yeah, he buys friends and plays with other kids, and 
I in invents Jello. I you know I don't. <laughs> and, then don't up, know. and then somehow it's ends up like somehow ends up in Lidsville. <laughs> yeah. Well, sadly, unfortunately, if you can't find a real job, you will eventually end up in Lidsville. Although it is the cuckoo kookiest. Um, hey, kickiest. If you don't know what Lidsville is, by all means, go look it up. No, I, God, I, don't. Yes, really, I dare don't. you. I'll, I'll just say Ugh. this because you wouldn't think that this would be any form of entertainment, but it is in a land entirely made up of one kid, one weird-ass magician, Charles Nelson Riley, his genie sidekick, and everybody else is a living, breathing, talking hat. Sentient haberdashery, yes. Yeah, hats. Uh, yeah, hats. Hats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was... This was uh, Oh God! Who is this? H.R. Puffin Sid, stuff. This is Sid and Marty. Sid Croft. and Marty Croft at their weirdest. I mean, this is yeah. dr- this is a drug trip of a show. And again, it stars Butch Patrick in his yep. teen years when he was trying to become the next Johnny Whitaker or something. Uh, yeah, he would eventually go on to uh, work at many many car shows. Um, <laughs> he would ride. He would ride the Eddie Munster thing for a long time. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, I don't know what the pace, the pacing of this film is very slow it as well. It is very slow and it is, the songs are boring and it drags. And so I think this brings us kind of to a natural thing of what did we think of this movie? The Roundup. Yes, Max. So, yeah. uh, you, 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 like I saw this once yeah. as a child and I, and, um, I, I chose this one because I, st- you know, a hundred years later, I still remembered it. It's still right. You know, stuck in my memory, but I think in my head I conflated it with the book, because mm. I gotta say th- this movie is not good, and it no. doesn't hold up. And I understand why it has fallen into obscurity. It has virtual, except for you know, hearing all those amazing voice actors together, it has nothing to recommend it. No, there seems to be no point. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I really don't know what, like, oh, and if you learn to love words and math, life is wonderful, I mm-hmm. guess. No, I, there, I, I mean, nothing. I honestly there's don't nothing. know. I, I am sorry. This one was, a, this one of, I think, the whole series. I, I think Captain Nemo in the Underwater City was better than this. <laughs> wow, that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, at least they had Mobula. <laughs> they did have Mobula, and at least they had some fun things to look at and comic relief here and there, and it moved along. Yeah, uh, I would I would say, I'm with Max on this one. I, I don't bother, really don't. It yeah. does not hold up. The only thing I could see that might attract somebody is if you're a huge animation fan if you're a chuck jones fan you're a completist you might want to see this because the animation is fine um i think some of the animation is fine i gotta say i know you you like the guy who did the backgrounds i thought the backgrounds in this were incredibly dull they were all completely static no movement no change and it's funny because there's sort of again a dichotomy there's sort of the the demons of ignorance part and the backgrounds there look to me like they were done by ivan earl he's the guy who did the backgrounds for sleeping beauty and disney um oh. and then there's the stuff earlier on which looks much more like maurice noble whom i really like um, maurice noble is also generally known for making amazingly wild color combinations that should not work and do mm. but we're in the late 60s early 70s and there was a real movement for toning down color in movies for reasons i don't understand um and that may have been part of the deal they were like oh no 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 we can't have that but if you're a chuck jones completist you want to see all of his work his animation or his character design in this uh is 
vintage Chuck Jones, yeah. late or it's just a vintage late era Chuck Jones. Um, that part of it, Milo's fine. The dog's fine. The dog is the most Chuck Jones thing in the whole film. It's yeah. like you could you could not oh, mistake I, I that character. I thought the humbug kind of was. So many of the expressions the humbug gives just look like you could see them on Bugs Bunny's face. Yeah, he and, and Tuck, I would say, are the most Chuck Jones characters. Yeah. Um, the fa- I, I'm going to have to go on a Lynn too and say, I don't think Chuck Jones likes kids. Because <laughs> really? none of the none of the Warner Brothers cartoons were meant for children. They were all meant to amuse the guys who were making them. Uh, and if you ask any of the directors, they all said the same thing. It's like we weren't making these for anybody. We were making for us. Oh, that's why I always and thought other- about Walt Disney. I thought Walt Disney deep down act- actively hated children. I don't know that he hates them, but I don't think he liked them. He always put he- something in his animated movies that was guaranteed to psychically scar the audience. <laughs> no, I meant Chuck Jones. No, oh, I mean Walt Disney. Yeah, no, yeah. I think I mean because it's like this is a, this is obviously supposed to be a kids' film because oh, yeah. it's based on a kids' book. It's got nothing but kids in it. The only adults we see are in the background when he goes home from school. Yeah, no adult has in the real world has a speaking part. Yeah, and just it's just I don't think that he under let's put it this way I don't think he understood kids. Um, the the level of vocabulary, some of which may came from the book, was not wielded very well. Um, Fibonacci sequence, yeah. really? Yeah. Uh, what was the last? Okay, no. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't think this film works because it doesn't know what it's trying to say. I don't think it knows where it's trying to go. Um, it's visually, it's it's okay. Um, Sonically, I guess you could put it like yeah. the the songs don't work. Although the voice cast, yeah, these are these are like the top, the cream of the crop of the vintage era voice cast, and they're doing great work. Hans Conrad, you can tell, is getting a little long in the tooth, but that's okay. It's still Hans Conrad. I let him, I let him read the the phone book. I don't care. But uh, yeah, not not one of our. I, you know what actually brought up brought to mind? I had utterly forgotten while watching this. But, the point. Do you remember the point? Oh, I remember. I never saw it, but uh. I remember, my yeah, I remember yeah. hearing a record of it. Yeah, that was a, a made-for-TV cartoon that I, pretty much everybody of our era saw. Yeah. And it was I think it was literally on once, but we all remember. And this was all about, you know, accepting people for who they are. Because it was everybody in the land of point had a point on their head except one kid who didn't. And, you know, his mom knitted him a, a point hat that he wore. But when they found out he didn't have a real point, he was sent off somewhere else. And um, But that song, Me and My Arrow... Uh, was I still remember that, but um, yeah, we uh, we are not going to choose that for our final. Uh, speaking of which, though, what episode. is our final choice made by so the you? Fi- by me, me, Neil Buffett. Now, the last episode in this series, when we was kids, is going to be one of my all-time favorite films, and I kind of cheated on this one because I have seen it many times since I was a child. <laughs> but I first saw it when I was a kid. I loved it then. Uh, as you well know, my loving a film does not necessarily mean it has quality, Hudson <laughs> Hawk. Uh, <laughs> but next week's episode, next week's film, one of my favorite movies ever, is the 1955 classic Forbidden Planet. It is probably the most expensive and um, potentially the best written of the 50 science fiction films because in the 50 science fiction was all the rage to get the teenagers into the theaters so did this film succeed in getting butts into chairs <laughs> does it still get butts into chairs are there butts max do you have butts on this film? well it does bring up the question what's up with zangief's ass and on that note i would like to say butts
Max Mike Movies is a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench.